Turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Psalm 51, we'll read the entire psalm. For most of you, or many of you, I suspect this is not the first time you've heard it. But listen again, this is God's Word. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin, and my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Well, imagine moving to the Philadelphia area from a foreign country, and a local tells you with enthusiasm, you must try a cheesesteak. And half of you are sitting there thinking, well, of course, you cannot have a true Philadelphia experience without a cheesesteak. And the other half of you are sitting there thinking, hmm, now I want a cheesesteak. <laughs> but if you've never eaten one before, or if you're not from around here, or if you've never even heard those two words put together, you're a little puzzled. Many of you, I trust, have, have no idea what I'm talking about because you've only ever known this. You think, or I did, well, I like cheese. Who doesn't? And what meat-eating human doesn't love a juicy 14-ounce grilled medium-rare ribeye steak? But when you put those two words together for me, and in spite of your enthusiasm, I become a little suspicious. After all, if someone is going to smother a steak with cheese, they're clearly hiding something. <laughs> but because they insist, you take the turnpike to the Blue Route, to the Schuylkill, past the Concha Hocken Curve, you make your way down to the city, and you find yourself a genuine cheesesteak shop. You order it with a little bit of apprehension. No one told you it was going to be on bread. 
The meat, while it looks like it probably comes from a cow, is definitely not a 14-ounce ribeye. And cheese whiz doesn't really qualify as cheese, does it? But then you take your first bite, and oh, baby, you're a believer. I'm a believer. I've learned a new word. I now understand it. I have experienced it. I embrace it, and I enjoy it. How much more, of course, do we need to understand, experience, embrace, enjoy, and announce to all the forgiveness of sins? You see, if you have a cheesesteak, you most likely become an ambassador for Philadelphia and an evangelist for cheesesteaks. You will tell anyone who comes to visit you, you need to try a cheesesteak. Let me take you with. How much more do we need to understand, experience, embrace, enjoy, and announce to all the forgiveness of sins? I believe in the forgiveness of sins is a phrase we say often. But if you've never heard it before, you have no idea what that means. And even if you've heard it many, many times, you might not have given it much thought or adequate reflection or pondered it and then therefore not fully embraced it or enjoyed it. That's why I've begun a new sermon series on looking more closely at some of the dominant metaphors or word pictures in the Bible God gives us to describe what He does when He forgives us. Images that depict the forgiveness of sins. And we're asking this question more broadly or more largely, if our sin stands between us and God and it's our fault, what does God do with our sin? The Apostle John writes, when we confess our sin, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. My goal in the series, my goal today, is I want us to be able to describe in biblical terms what forgiveness is so that we can describe it to ourselves and so we can describe it to others. So we can declare it to the world that you will have a better sense of what sin is that needs to be forgiven, but what forgiveness is as it relates to your sin. That you'll have a clearer picture of who God is, the God who forgives. That you will delight in His mercy and grace and compassion toward you in Jesus Christ, through whom forgiveness is secured. That you will know and believe and live out of what it means to be forgiven that you'll live lives of joy and peace and productivity and praise. And that brings us to Psalm 51. It's a psalm that describes sin and forgiveness and a response. I look at it this morning in those three ways. It describes sin, it describes God's forgiveness, and it describes our response. In short... Sin, in Psalm 51, stains, pollutes, makes unclean. We have no reason to doubt the superscription of the psalm, that this is David's response to having been confronted in his sin with respect to Bathsheba by the prophet Nathan. 
If you're unfamiliar with the story, it involves the sin of the king coveting his neighbor's wife, lusting after her, committing adultery with her, deceiving her husband, and having him killed. He took another man's wife as his own. He tried to cover up his sin, he tried to minimize his sin. He had the man killed, arranged to have the murder look like an act or a result of war. And he took that woman to be his wife, Bathsheba. David's sin and that progression of his sin looks a lot like what we hear of in James chapter 1. A temptation that feeds an evil desire that in turn dragged him away and enticed him. A desire that conceived and gave birth to sin and when it was fully grown, gave birth to death. And as David reflects on this sin, his sin, in this psalm, he describes it at the end of verse 1 and into verse 2 using several different words, part of poetry to be sure, but amplifying these things, transgressions, iniquities, sins. Sins of trans, as a transgression, as an open, intentional, deliberate, defiant act of rebellion against God. It's an act of rebellion against God. Iniquity has this picture of going astray, not simply losing one's way, but willfully, deliberately leaving a path, missing the ultimate goal or destination. And the word sin here is describing missing the mark or a target. So rebellious acts, swerving from a path, missing the mark, all these kinds of ways, David is depicting his sin with Bathsheba against her and against Uriah. And he gives that fuller picture. Notice verse 4, as being against God. Against you, you only have I sinned. You know, of course, David sinned against the nation because his sin was as king. He sinned against Uriah in taking both his wife and his life. And he sinned against Bathsheba in taking her to himself with what might be this great power differential between the two of them. He took her because he wanted her. And as he stands here with Nathan pointing the finger at him, as it were, he stands convicted before a holy God. And yes, he recognizes the horizontal dimensions of his sin. He sinned against other people. But that sin for David in Psalm 51 is diminished in comparison to the vertical aspects or dimensions of his sin. I've sinned against God. Even to a way of saying to the exclusion of his sin against the others. All he sees is his sin against God. And it gets worse. Because not only is, is his sin multidimensional, uh, not only does he recognize it's against Godness, but he sees how deep his problem is, how pervasive that sin problem is. Describes it in terms of his lifespan. He's sinful from birth. As far back as even sinful from the moment of conception, there are no innocent babies, and he was not one. 
which means he's not a sinner because he sinned. He's a, he sinned because he was a sinner. He doesn't look at himself and, and imagine he's a sinner because he sinned in these great ways against Uriah, with Bathsheba, and against her, or even against the Lord. But he sinned because constitutionally, fundamentally, from the beginning of his life and existence, he was a sinner. It still gets, it gets even worse if you, if you want. His sin problem is not just a series of overt, open acts. But his sin has settled in. And it flows out of the inmost place, verse 6. The deep, dark recesses of his heart. There's more. For all the ways his sin has affected others, for all the ways it's open and an open act of rebellion against God, for all the ways it extends through his whole life and into his deepest, darkest parts, it also has significant adverse effects on him, not to be missed. He couldn't forget it. He couldn't shake it. He couldn't cover it. He couldn't sweep it away. It was ever before him, always in his consciousness, depriving him of peace and rest and joy, robbing him of joy and gladness. He says, as if his very bones were being crushed. He felt, in body and in spirit, the alienation and estrangement from God. Sin does that. It did it to David, it does it to us. But notice we turn the corner and Psalm 51 describes God's forgiveness. And do notice this, as God through David describes what forgiveness looks like, notice how closely it matches our sin. You see, I suspect if I were to conduct a poll and ask you to list the first words that came to your mind when I say sin, you would probably have near or at the top of your list the word guilt. Sin leads to guilt. We are guilty, I feel guilty, I stand condemned, and you have a world of courtroom language taken from Scripture to be sure. But that's how you tend to think of sin. You think of God sitting on his judgment throne, evaluating, weighing your life of sin, finding you guilty, declaring you guilty, condemning you to death, and thanks be to God, you at least understand that that sentence, that condemnation, that judgment has fallen on Jesus for you. But you think in terms of guilt, in terms of courtroom. Notice Psalm 51, when David thinks of his sin here, nearly all of his definitions, all of his descriptions coalesce into a different set of images. Sin defiles, it pollutes, it stains, it makes unclean. Please don't mishear me. Sin makes us guilty. We'll talk about that another day. Psalm 51, sin especially makes us unclean. 
David, as he describes his sin, is placing the accent not on God on the throne as a judge, but God present with his people in the most holy place. David, like a priest, but unclean, unable. Cast me not from your presence. David sees God in his holy, majestic, sinless, pure presence. Look at the verbs David uses to plead for forgiveness. Verses 1 and 2, blot out. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me. Verse 7, cleanse or purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verses 9 and 10, blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. The very response to the pervasive problem of sin. Clean my heart. See, David views his sin here in light of God's perfect, holy, pure, radiant presence. And in the near background, I think we're to see the picture of the high priest who must engage in a, a series of ritual washings and bathings, purifying ceremonies before he can enter in with the sacrifice into the most holy place where God lived among his people. And so David uses language borrowed from the, from the world of laundry. Blot out or scrape off my sin. Hold me under the water and beat the dirt off of me with a stick. Plunge me into the water, rinse me off, make me pure, wash me. Hose me down that I might be able again to enter into your presence and to stand before you. Down in verse 7, David amplifies this request by asking to be cleansed with hyssop, the sponge used to sprinkle blood, again associated with the priesthood. So forgiveness for David in Psalm 51 is washing and cleansing. And it's not only washing away the acts of sin in this way, but he prays for a thoroughgoing cleansing that gets to and takes care of the deepest, dirtiest inner parts of his being. He knows at the end of the psalm, the Lord will not delight in some outward performance of a sacrifice or in another burnt offering, but that what the Lord wants is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. So he prays for a thoroughgoing cleansing, a healing and a restoration and a washing to the deepest, darkest parts of his heart. In verse 10, David recognizes that his sin problem isn't just in the past with, with respect to his sin against Bathsheba, to that outward act of sin he's committed. It is that. But he also understands that without the thoroughgoing cleansing and washing and purification from the inside out, all of his future conduct will trend in the same direction. So he's not simply asking to be purified or cleansed from those past sins, but he's recognizing he needs to be cleansed within that he might live differently. So he prays for that pure heart. Renew in me a steadfast spirit. Or to use the old automotive image I've used before, don't just check the, or service the check engine light. Overhaul the entire engine. He needs a washing and a renewal that 
penetrates into his inmost being because he sees his sin in Psalm 51 as dirt and pollution and uncleanness. He is not fit to stand in the presence of the holy God. And so forgiveness is cleansing and washing and purifying. And even though the divinely prescribed way of entering into God's presence in the Old Testament is through the sacrifice and through the blood, again, David recognizes that's not enough. Or at least these sacrifices are not enough. But you know, and we know, and he knew, they pointed to a better sacrifice. And so again, he comes with a broken heart, a contrite spirit. He throws himself, what does he do? He throws himself at the mercy of God. That's how he began the psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. In other words, he's appealing to God and his character and his promises. He appeals to God's character as a God of mercy and compassion. He appeals to God's promise as a God who is a covenant-keeping God who establishes a relationship. I will restore that relationship even when you mess it up. He appeals to God's mercy as a demonstration of God's favor for the undeserving. He appeals to God's compassion by which he shows pity and kindness to the pitiable and pathetic. And he appeals to God's unfailing covenant love by which God stays true to his promises, to his willingly assumed commitments, his ongoing self-obligation to do all things for our good, even if or especially as it it involves the removal of our guilt and our sin, our uncleanness, our impurity, all of which have threatened to undo and unravel our relationship with Him. Our sin, not only guilt-inducing, but with all of its impurity, unravels, nearly dissolves our relationship with God that He established with us, and He has committed Himself to restoring that relationship. And in His grace and mercy and compassion and commitment to His covenant promises, He does that. And we recognize immediately that Psalm 51 makes no sense without Jesus Christ. The one who enters into the realm of the unclean, who takes our sin on himself. And if you think of some of the Levitical laws related to sin and impurity and uncleanness, one of them, a significant part of that, was being in the realm of the dead, or even touching a dead body. Jesus enters that realm, becomes ultimately unclean in our place for our sakes, that he might purchase for us the cleansing, the purification that come. It is one of the great mysteries of the gospel, and it's perhaps a little confusing to many that we are made whiter than snow by being washed with blood. That our robes are made white by being washed in the blood of the Lamb. 
one of the great mysteries of the gospel that we can stand in the presence of God and imagine ourselves, if we take a, a, an honest assessment of our lives, that we are polluted by sin. Or maybe we just feel dirty and ashamed. And God, in His mercy and compassion, cleanses us, purifies us, washes us. Because Jesus entered into our shame, took upon Himself our sin, was considered unclean for us, touched the leper, had business with a woman who was bleeding. Jesus enters into our uncleanness to the very point of death, triumphs over the grave in His resurrection, and guess what he does? He enters into the presence of God. In other words, accepted as clean and pure and righteous and holy and cleansed. God welcomes him into the heavenly throne room. And he goes there for us and in our place. Which means if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are among those who have been washed in the streams of salvation. You've been baptized into his death. You've been raised with him in newness of life. So you can live your life as David describes the life of the forgiven. This is our response now. Let me know the joy of your salvation. Let me teach transgressors, other people, about the cleansing forgiveness of God. Words they've probably never heard before, or maybe they don't understand. But now I understand a little better. Let me teach them. Let me lead sinners back to you. Let me sing of your righteousness. Let me open my lips and declare your praise. And then you will live in the cleansing power of Christ turning from sin into paths of new obedience, knowing that you were washed, are washed, are clean, that you've been made clean, are considered by God to be clean because you're covered in the blood of Christ by the Spirit of God who welcomes you into His presence and you stand there because you can, because Christ has made you pure. You don't always feel like it, but constitutionally, you are. And so you can draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled to cleanse you from a guilty conscience, having your bodies washed with pure water. You can stand before God with spotless robes, with joy, entering into his presence, seeing, feeling his smile, his benevolence, his kindness, his warm, warm welcome, because you're cleansed by Christ, renewed by the Spirit. You are forgiven. You have been washed. Go in peace. Let's pray. Our dear Father, we thank you for this aspect of your grace and mercy to us. Thank you for all the complexity and the descriptions of sin. More especially, we thank you for 
all of the corresponding ways you deal with our sin. More and above and beyond all we could ask or imagine. But that if there's any kind of way we might imagine or feel like we have sinned, you remind us by your spirit and word that your grace is sufficient. It covers, cleanses, purifies, makes us clean. How we thank you, our God and our Father, for your mercy and kindness in Christ. Receive our praise. Hear our prayer. We ask and offer it in Jesus' name. We all say together, Amen.